0: Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck.
1: Hi, I'm Sean Katie. And I'm AP Andy.
0: And we are here with a very excellent guest today. Artist, writer, journalist with a point of view, unofficial portraitist of the New York left and beyond, Molly Crabapple. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Oh, and Molly also has a new book out called Brothers of the Gun, It's on the long list for the National Book Awards. Hell yeah. Pretty cool. Um, You want to just give us a little blurb about your book, Molly? Sure. So um,
2: me and one of my dearest friends and probably the bravest human I know, um, Syrian journalist named Marwan Hisham, we spent the last three years writing his memoir of uh, life during the revolution and also what life was like after ISIS took over his hometown. Did 82 illustrations, like Goya's Disasters of War. And it's a pretty deadly honest um, account of what it's like to live through a civil war revolution and what it's like when everyone from America to Russia to your own government starts bombing your
3: city. Wow.
0: That's... That's intense.
3: That's uh, That sounds intense, but it also sounds really, really important for folks who uh, can't really get a grasp on what's going on over there. Sometimes those first-person accounts are the best way of sort of understanding what tons of people are facing in uh, situations like that.
2: Thanks so much. And also, it's one of the only books that came out of Syria that's uh, by a working-class person. So that's something I thought was really mm-hmm. important because the whole publishing industry, not just about Syria but about everywhere, is kind of about locking out working-class voices. So I was really honored to get to have Marwan's perspective on this.
0: That's the mindset. So uh, we're probably going to do a whole episode on Syria at some point in time. It's a a difficult topic to cover. We do not feel qualified, but I think at some point in time, we need to talk about it because it's important. But um, you know it's even more important, though? (laughs) Than Syria? (laughs) Is to find out the answer to our question that we ask all our guests at the Antifada. And that question is, Molly, how pure is your hate today? (laughs) I suppose,
2: You'd have to define what my hate is being directed to, because I have so many varieties of hate, both pure and
3: impure. Hmm. Why don't you make a taxonomy of your hates and then rank them? You don't actually have to do that. <laughs> Pick maybe one variable on the hate spectrum.
2: I think my my current thing that I hate so much is, so I'm from New York, I'm from far Rockaway, and nothing stirs up the true depths of my hatred like seeing some, like, tiny little like bodega or business or cafe or whatever in some tiny little tenement that I always loved being completely bulldozed and replaced by warehouses for the global oligarch class with a bank or a Duane Reed on the bottom.
3: You see that more and more even in like the quote-unquote marginal parts of New York City like Far Rockaway which has tons of um, public housing because it was so far away from everything. You had these small bungalow type communities I'm sure you grew up in something like that, and uh, it just seems like there's nowhere in New York or even abroad where the, you know, reaches of that fire sector, finance, uh, uh, insurance, and real estate doesn't touch anymore, and you see these disgusting buildings going up even in Far Rockaway.
1: it? Sometimes it drives me even crazier when uh, a place that I really love closes down and just stays empty for years. Oh, ah, yeah. yeah. Yes, like, yes. Uh, like when food swings close and it was just empty oh, for like it. six years and then the guy from LCD Sound System opened up a wine bar there like seven years later. <laughs> the hate is
0: pure. The hate is pure.
1: <laughs> we got you there. We got you there. You
0: know, my hate was a little impure until you said that and now it's like back to a 10. Don't fuck with an anarchist vegan's food. That's all I'm saying. I'm neither an anarchist nor a vegan at this point in my life, but I still sometimes swing that way. <laughs> so swing that way. So uh, I guess now is a good time to plug our Patreon, right, guys? Maybe? Yeah, do
3: it. Plug the shit out right. of it. We plugged a book, let's plug a uh, Patreon.
0: All right. So, uh, as you may know, our show relies on your support. Uh, We have a great Discord community for our members, as well as bonus content like Sean's excellent new series, History is a Weapon, and assorted other things. So uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash theantifada and give us your money, please. So moving right along. As we all know, it's been a pretty bad week for women. It has been, yes. I mean, most, many weeks.
2: But this has been a particular sort of hell week of porcine men screaming incoherently because they're angry that women have any control over their bodies.
0: Yeah, we got that. We got a uh, probable raper going on the Supreme Court. We got, um, ugh, who knows what's coming down the pike. But let's take a moment. And look back on a simpler time when everything was great for women a time when our dear leader selena mooney made us a wonderful website so we could rise up and empower ourselves by taking our (laughs) clothes off (laughs) i am talking of course of the famed celebrated anarcho-syndicalist co-op known (laughs) as bakuna's girls (sighs) <sighs> oh
2: oh god oh god you're bringing me back to to the days when i was uh just a starry-eyed 20-year-old modeling for uh, dudes with cameras and this guy that i knew said do you want to make 200 dollars?" i was like well by golly i would <laughs> and um then he so he sold my pictures to a website and then later i learned that i was part of an all-female empowering and radical collective that said that if, you know, I don't know if we posed in pink panties, didn't reveal we had a boyfriend online, and had just enough tattoos to be tasteful but not too much, that, you know, we could all be part of a sisterhood. We were basically
0: a women's protection unit in I pink.
3: I don't think you've, you've actually named the, the real name of it, but that would be uh, Suicide Girls. you're talking about, right? Yeah, there you go. No, I was never, I uh, never actually a member of Suicide Girls. I've never uh, perused their pictures, except maybe one person's picture, who uh, I might be married to. So <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with that.
0: Gross. <laughs> what?
3: I can't look at you.
0: You're, gross, you're grossing out Andy again. Uh,
3: I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
0: He's getting so mad.
3: It's for the re-
1: trying to figure out which suicide girl it is. <laughs>
3: <laughs> for the record, it was after we had already started dating, so it wasn't like I was creeping on you to see what you looked like yeah, uh, yeah. before.
0: So <laughs> yeah, um, suicide girls. For those who may not know, was it, it still is actually a website that's sort of like um, I don't know, sort of like an alternative flavored kind of Playboy. But they talked about it like it was the revolution, which was—it's very funny.
2: It—I mean, there was nothing wrong with Suicide Girls. So first off, like me and Jamie, we know each other because we were both Suicide Girls
0: back in the day. Back in the day, that's not nothing. Yeah, we 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 were both Suicide Girls, well, and I think you quit around the time that I started. Well, a little after I started, because like there was the labor dispute. Yeah, and you... you were politically aware. <laughs> So what did you do?
2: So Suicide okay. Girls had um a burlesque tour and they had you know some girls to- tour the country um and they if i'm remembering it correctly so if i'm uh, getting anything wrong don't sue me i know you're a very uh lawsuit happy website suicide girls
3: (laughs) the youtube commenters will take care of it yeah
2: yeah, yeah. suicide girls without sue (laughs) but um they went to the women who were on this burlesque tour and said uh we're gonna do a documentary about it and also we're cutting out the one black girl who's on the tour we're gonna edit her out Oh shit! and uh do you want to take i know that part uh, yeah yeah and do you want to take like two thousand dollars uh and sign away so you can do this doc we can do this documentary and the girls, because they're young, and we're like, okay. And then they put it on Showtime and mm. made a whole lot of money about it and expected um, the girls also, I think, to do a bunch of unpaid promotional work, which is how Suicide Girls was.
0: It's a community. Yeah, it's a
2: community. It's they're a, just volunteering in their community. We wouldn't want to be mercenary, <laughs> m- money-grubbing capitalists by demanding our boss pays us for things. That yeah. would be ridiculous.
3: <laughs> Not in an anarchist co-op.
2: No, no, no. And so... Um, a bunch of uh, these girls quit and their friends did. And um, there are other things, too. But that's basically where it was. And I was not a popular girl on Suicide Girls. I um, was not a member of the Burlesque Tour. I was not uh, one of the big models. But I, because of how I was raised, I guess, because I was raised badly, was like <laughs> all of these um, women, my fellow models, are quitting because of labor exploitation because they signed a bad contract well by golly I'm going to quit too because that's what you have to do like solidarity I don't know if my solidarity was anyway appreciated I don't know if anyone noticed or cared but uh, I wrote an extremely uh, outraged blog post about this sort of exploitation and I was um, immediately what they called archived which meant that my naked photos were kept up but all of the things that I wrote were deleted from the site
0: Well, if I I always like to say if strippers are like the small business women of the naked girl business, uh, suicide girls are the unpaid interns. That is cuttingly accurate. I mean, you did get paid right for modeling. And I
2: think a lot of, you know, girls who posed, including me, it was just yet another gig on the long, long list of uh, naked photo shoots by which we funded our early art careers. But there were definitely people who thought that Suicide Girls was an anarcho-syndicalist community that was also simultaneously going to make them famous and probably get them started in an indie comic book.
0: Oh, yeah. And, like, to be fair, a few of them did get something from it. I don't know. I did not quit when Molly quit because I was a scab. (laughs) <laughs> and I probably still thought Suicide Girls is going to make me famous at some point in time. But I think we both had moments independently of one another. And, and a lot of girls probably had moments like this, too, where you realize, oh, wait a second. None of this is this is this is bullshit. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like a glorified set dressing for some like rock star. Rock and roll, some like, uh I have this story that I probably don't have time to tell right now, but I put it in my memoir, and it's funny. This uh, terrible band in the aughts. I'm not even going to name them here, because <laughs> that's not the point. you mean to name them. The but, Strokes. Coldplay. Interpol. The the the, the Pitchfork <laughs> Review. Oh, God. All right. It was Morningwood. The Pitchfork Review. <laughs> I was going to go of bright eyes. But, was yeah. like, they got like a 4.9 for their major label debut, and the Pitchfork Review was just scathing. And uh, I I did one of those unpaid opportunities where you like go and dance in your underwear. I did that too one time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, And I it was a like fun here. or whatever. But then like, oh my God, this the singer of this band was, I don't want to be mean because she's very nice. She probably isn't listening, but you never know. But like, uh, she said the dumbest stuff in this interview with the SG Newswire where she's like, um, it's not objectifying women for me to have naked girls on stage because I'm a woman too. So that's like turning the patriarchal dynamic on its head. And it's Aww. interesting.
2: I mean, I don't mind objectifying women or men. I just want them to be fairly compensated for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, Whoa. that too. There you
4: go.
0: But like, I think the at the end of the day, I was like, oh, wait, I want a platform. I want to talk out my ass in interviews. This isn't how I'm going to get that. Exactly. Also, Suicide
2: Girls, they at one point, tried to claim like complete ownership over all of the models, like not just the photos they shot, but their personas, their tattoos. They wanted you basically to be a a topless brand extension. That's what it was, a topless, unpaid brand extension. And what SG taught me pretty early was I, I had always obviously known that like companies are terrible and exploitive. But I think there was a part in the back of my head that thought that if a company was run by people who wore cool t-shirts that it would all be terribly different. So in that era in the aughts where companies would pretend that because they were cool, they didn't have to do things like pay you to go places or stick to working hours or not sexually harass you. That was something that taught a lot of people that the problem wasn't that the people at the companies wore suits and ties. The problem was that companies are exploitive. Mm.
0: Yeah. It's like, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, right? Like that's not a new concept that's been keeping people down forever, but it was a new iteration of that in the odds that I think kind of prefigured the intensification of what we see today where, like, it's totally normal to, like, be friends with a brand on social media. (laughs) And when people... Remember when people uh, got... uh, They got, like, the Coca-Cola Twitter or something to tweet uh, quotes from Mein Kampf? And... Uh, Yeah, the Gawker people did that. And everyone was like, how dare you? How dare you do that to my friend, Coca-Cola? It's like, (laughs) what the fuck are you talking about? This is an evil multinational corporation that kills people in Latin America to sell their carbonated sugar water that's giving you cancer. Like, what? But it's fucking stupid. Yeah,
2: it it just tricked a lot of people because it was like if you put nice enough window dressing on something, then the fundamental mechanisms of uh profit and extracting value from labor go away
0: yeah like the idea that we're all just friends here you know it's not and and i've had this happen at women's websites as well that i worked at where it's like oh we're all just friends hanging out having a really good time like suicide girls it's just like a slumber party with your best girlfriends like, there, there couldn't be anything exploitative about that, only we're making money off of you. And like, it's still around, believe it or not, which is funny, because in my mind, it's like the most Y2K thing that has ever existed in history.
3: Suicide Girls, you mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's like sort of, these, sort of uh, these decadent, late 90s alt subcultures kind of moving online at the time when they had that technology to do so and kind of all mixing into this, like, increasingly ahistorical stew of, like, goths and emos, but, like, really disconnected from many, like, subcultures, IRL, because they were, like, moving online. So it, it was a very Y2K thing. Which is funny because like people don't really talk about stuff as being Y two K yet or aughts. Like we're very comfortable saying that's so nineties, but like the aughts, people are like almost even embarrassed to admit that they happened.
2: It's funny though. Like in some ways, I have to admit that I have a nostalgia for that era online. I mean, part of the reason that stuff wasn't. IRL was because a lot of these things were being done by like 13 year olds living in areas where they'd be bashed if they, you know, tried to do it in IRL.
0: Oh, yeah, there were definitely yeah. very liberating things about it. And the idea that you could take on a new name and play around with that as sort of a, a safety valve, almost away from whatever was happening in your real life or like it was just like a safe way to try shit out. Like those were some of the first articles I ever wrote were under my suicide girl's name for oh, the wow. SG Newswire. And it was like a really fun chance for me to like play around with a kind of writer that I wanted to be.
2: Exactly. And you could like explore things without every single thing that you ever did being picked apart for potential problematic content. And then brought up seven years later to try to like get you kicked out of your job.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Dead ass. Come. Yeah. So there was that interview recently that um, Missy did with I think it was the cut. And it was like so anachronistic. I'm like, why are you doing a story about suicide girls now? And they like never even acknowledged that fact throughout the entire feature. It was just like, all right. Uh, But she had this one quote where she was like, they were talking about like why they charge members for memberships or why they accept ads or something. And she was like, well, we wanted to be able to pay people. That was really important to us that we could pay the models. Like, was that even on the table? You could not pay your workers. Yeah, no
2: one will pose for a softcore website for free, I
0: hope. Well, once upon a time, people paid for porn, so that's kind of a <laughs> fun footnote to history. <laughs> Children, I know you don't believe me, but it's true. So speaking of Manic Pixie dream girls and the men who love them, uh, I think Sean has an update on everyone's favorite Twitter capitalist, the man himself, perpetually not mad online i'm talking of course of lonnie musk
3: that's right people this is this week in musk i mean we need some sort of like punchy thing this week
0: in musk there you go
3: (laughs) so our favorite hapless billionaire twit is at it again uh elon musk Unable to keep control of the interface between his completely neurotypical brain and his hyperactive Twitter fingers, Musk has been convicted this week by the Security and and Exchange Commission of security fraud. As the SEC lawsuit details, Elon cannot help but announce in 140 characters that he'd secured outside funding to take Tesla from a publicly traded corporation to a privately held one. Conspicuously, he estimated the selling price of a share of the Tesla stock to be four hundred and twenty dollars. Nice. Oh. Now, the SEC code against fraud is meant to prevent investors and owners from releasing inside information uh, to pump up the value of a stock. Right. Uh, smart capitalist could use this to pump and dump, basically said stock and make a huge profit by selling out before the bubble burst. Uh, But at 19 billion dollars net worth and with a pubescent teen's sense of propriety, it turns out that Musk was simply tweeting this actionable fraud in order to impress his then girlfriend, the musician and manic pixie dream girl Grimes, because she had just explained to this grown ass man the burnout numerology of 420, man. So there you have it. The billionaire brain genius is now banished from control of Tesla's board for three years and must pay a $40 million fine. Perhaps most devastating for Musk observers like ourselves, the SEC has mandated that independent control be placed by the board of directors over his Twitter account No, to keep mishaps like this from happening again.
0: Damn you, Grimes. <laughs> While
3: $40 million is not a big loss for Musk... Uh the authoritarian state taking away his ability to wax philosophically on whatever is on his strange mind or who is or is an a pedo is a loss for us all. <laughs> this is Sean signing out for what may be a three year hiatus in the continued misadventures of our favorite ruling class Manchild.
0: God damn it. I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say. What are we going to do if we don't have Elon Musk's Twitter presence to make fun of?
3: He's real unique, you know. In, in, in terms of members of our ruling class, he really does
1: serve an excellent purpose. And if us. he just set the price to $69, none of this would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> ah. Excellent.
0: Well, I think uh, my friend Carter had a pretty good take on it, which is it's not uncommon for a nerd like him to just totally freak out and not be able to hang when he dates a girl who's out of his league so maybe that's what's going on I don't know I don't know so I also wanted to give a little plug to our our comrades in the IWW that would be industrial workers of the world um they uh they said that some of their members are big fans of the show and uh asked to plug their thing on our show so Fluttery will get you everywhere with us, so I'm going to do it. Um,
3: Shout out to the Wobbs.
0: They're having a fundraiser called Wobfest, which is a bunch of bands with IWW members in them playing at Pine Box Rock Shop October 6th to raise money for their active labor campaigns here in New York City. So if you're in New York City and you want to do something fun, support the Wobbs, check it out, folks.
1: Are they going to be like hobo jug bands?
0: Um, I cannot vouch as to the quality or the kind of music there, but, uh, you know, maybe go see for yourself and report back to us. Will do. <laughs> so, let's get into the meat of this episode. Um, Molly, you are something of a citizen journalist, and professional journalist as well, but of the people. Uh, you recently went to Puerto Rico um, in the wake of the Hurricane Maria disaster there and produced some very good reportage on what's going on there. So um, a year, I can't believe it's been a year since the hurricane hit. Um, I feel like we should revisit it and talk about it because it's not going away. No, there are still
2: places in Puerto Rico that still don't have power a year later. So a little bit of backstory. My, my dad's from San Sebastián in Puerto Rico. He's uh, he's a Puerto Rican studies professor, um, a political economist, way more rigorous brain than I am. And um, I went to Puerto Rico a lot to see my grandparents when I was a kid. But uh, when my granddad died, um, you know, and my my abuela came here, like I stopped going. And I hadn't been back to Puerto Rico for over 20 years more than 20 years, 20, 25, 20, 24 years I hadn't been back to, wow. to, to Puerto Rico. And I, I'd wanted to go back for a few years before, but I think like a lot of people, maybe their family comes from somewhere else, but they don't have super strong ties to it themselves. You always think, oh, I, I'll have plenty of time. I can you know, go back whenever I want to. And then Maria happened. And I went there the first time in... Over two decades, 11 days after Maria. And I just came back with a duffel bag full of stuff. I was partially going to report, but partially just going to like bring batteries to my friends in the mountains. And I uh, kept going back and I kept uh, reporting uh, some after that to describe like what not just Maria did to Puerto Rico, but also what this colonial status and what this contemptible local government did to Puerto Rico. I mean, it's a mm. You know, 3, people were killed it was a tragedy and there has yeah.
0: been i was i was gonna ask you about that because i really want to debunk the idea that this was purely a natural disaster or an act of god right because we know that it wasn't like what what were the real causes of the humanitarian crisis
2: uh, there are so many real causes of the humanitarian crisis there's the fact that the um Local government uh, is run by a dude named Ricky Rosayo, who only got the job because he is the son of the former governor, and he is a creature of complete uh, corruption and vanility and contempt. Uh, There is uh, the fact that the power grid is, I mean, the way that electrical wiring is done in Puerto Rico reminds me of stuff that I saw in Palestinian refugee camps where people were not allowed to bring in construction supplies. There's the fact that Puerto Rico has had hideous austerity imposed on it by um, la junta, the fiscal control board, as part of Obama's promessa deal, which has just, like, stripped the money from everything. Uh, There's the fact that Trump doesn't care if Puerto Ricans die and didn't do anything to help them, and FEMA lied about access. Uh, There's the fact that, um, I mean, you know, I'm I'm almost, like, a little bit emotional when, when I talk about it, but the infrastructure and everything was stripped bare before. A really bad hurricane happened and then the federal government decided you people should all die and the uh, first lady of Puerto Rico made a corrupt charity and hoarded all of the aid and um, kept it all in warehouses while she was using it for photo ops and didn't distribute it. And in between everything, a lot of people, a lot of New Yorkers grandparents died.
0: God. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to think the number of people who died, like per capita, right? Like, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's a substantial proportion of the population. And it was so, it was so deadly. Like, if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, if you were old, like, it didn't matter what else you had going on. It didn't matter how much money you had. Like, you were, you're fucked. Like, I know um, my tattoo artist, shout out to Gerald Feliciano, awesome guy. His grandpa died uh, because he he split his time between uh, mainland U.S. and Puerto Rico. And he was he happened to be there when the hurricane hit and he was up in the mountains and he couldn't get medicine or supplies and he died.
2: So many people in Puerto Rico. It's like a quarter People over 65, by the way, uh, because people who are younger would tend to, to go to the U.S. to work because there's been a devastating financial crisis uh, for for a while in Puerto Rico. And I mean, I remember when I went there the first time, there was a lady who was in her 50s and she was with her mom who had really, really severe Alzheimer's. Like her mom couldn't eat correctly or talk or she was emaciated. And, she was try- and she, the mom had been kicked out of a nursing home because... The nursing home couldn't cope with dealing with tons of severe Alzheimer's patients with no water or power while also the staff at the nursing home had to take care of their own people. And so this lady is trying to take care of her mom while she can't get medicine and while she's collecting water from the side of a mountain.
3: God. What I think not all of this, but a lot of this comes down to is the very sort of ambiguous relationship between mainland United States and Puerto Rico. I'm looking at a uh, survey from around the time the hurricane happened and only, uh, let's see, a majority of the people in the United States did not know that the uh, people in Puerto Rico were American citizens right we they were not aware that this was a a dependency a territory an autonomous state uh within the a colony a colony thank you uh within the u.s and you even had i think at that time some right-wing folks i figured it was congress people or news people or both who were saying why should the u.s government be you know giving all this money and aid to a foreign country why can't they deal with it themselves Um, It's a little different here in New York or places like Florida where there is a large Puerto Rican population and we're, you know, familiar with the people and somewhat of their history. Right. But I think there's a real disconnect. You know, this hurricane, the hurricane that happened in what was it, Houston? Uh, last year as well you know massive aid went into there and uh, you know we now have this thing happen in North and South uh, Carolina tons of news coverage right and obviously FEMA is going to come in and give a bunch of relief but uh, in terms of Puerto Rico it took us over a year well almost a year to figure out how many people actually even died there right so big is the disconnect between us and this colonial territory that we have and the three what three million people that live there
0: And Trump still won't admit how many people died as a result of this disaster, right? Yeah, he claims it's all fake. Everyone in
2: Puerto Rico, by the way, knew that um, they didn't know exactly how many it was in the first day, but they knew that it was, you know, hundreds or even even thousands because hospitals had basically turned into morgues at that point. And part of the reason that this death toll was... uh, so wildly underestimated was deliberate. They were labeling everyone who died afterwards as dying of natural causes, even if they literally died because their oxygen machine went off while they were at the hospital, and then they were just cremating the bodies so that there couldn't be autopsies.
0: It's fucking despicable. There's no justification for that, but I think it's really important to understand what caused this and the ways in which um, U.S. capitalism... Imperialism and colonialism have contributed to this crisis. Um, I think you have a little bit on that right babe
3: yeah, I mean, from the research that i 've done in Mali, correct me if i 'm wrong um, there 's been ever since eighteen ninety eight when we took Puerto Rico over from the Spanish in the Treaty of paris uh, there 's been a very sort of um, I don't know, conflicted uh, feeling towards this uh, place in uh, u- the u s halls of power. Because on the one hand, uh, it was a great place for the military to recoll their, um, and re-oil their ships. Um, it also gave us a foothold in the Caribbean and the South for us to kind of, you know, use as a uh, place to project power. Um, but later on, um, especially in the 1940s, in 47, uh, I believe it was, um, it was uh, there was something called Operation Bootstraps, which is... An incredibly uh, or- Orwellian way of uh, describing a.
0: Infuriating. Uh, yeah.
3: It was basically a policy that said that um, the uh, Puerto Rican economy, uh, instead of having like a state socialist style import uh, substitution industrialization policy, we were instead going to give massive tax breaks to U.S. corporations who went over there and started manufacturing uh, plants. Uh, This was really great for U.S. corporations who could find a very large reserve army of labor, you know, in order to go exploit. Uh, And it also did create a lot of jobs uh, for Puerto Rican people. Um, What happens, too, is that when we're talking about austerity. Right. They gave a special bond uh, provision to Puerto Rico, which made it so that all of the bonds that helped to run the government for capital funding and whatnot were tax-free, essentially. Uh, they were exempt from taxes. So U.S. and f- foreign finance capital found found bonds for Puerto Rico to be a great investment because you wouldn't be taxed on them at all. So what happens is Clinton himself in 1996 actually ends this subsidy for uh, corporations to go into Puerto Rico because he said, like, our job is done here, and plus we had just passed NAFTA. So we got that reserve army labor in uh, Puerto Rico you know we kind of ran out of them so now we're gonna move on to Mexico and then of course later China and elsewhere so it's really been a rolling crisis for the last about 20 years Uh, ever since these subsidies to corporations have gone away the jobs have gone away in Puerto Rico you've seen tons of people already leaving Puerto Rico because there's no jobs Uh, the tax base of course dwindling and uh, then on top of this in the midst of a uh, crisis and austerity you have the hurricane come to currently finally kind of give like the death blow to uh, Puerto Rico as a, as a place, uh, a human place, you know, where people can survive and thrive.
2: And I, I would even bring it a little bit further back to before Operation Bootstrap. Puerto Rico, it's a place that is so agriculturally fertile that even under Spanish colonization, the Spanish were like, how are we going to make these people work? If they have like a little plot of land, they can grow everything they need to eat. We cannot make them toil on haciendas. This is just not going to work and under america the first thing that america did was bring in sugar monopolies mm-hmm. so before people were working for american corporations right they were basically working as sharecroppers and agricultural peasant labor for um you know huge huge american sugar trusts some of which were set up um i'm sorry the, the biggest of the biggest sugar monopoly which was set up by the former governor of puerto rico the us appointed governor so this was always a place that was being used both as a captive market for u.s goods and a place where you could get like cheap labor to um you know to manufacture your stuff and under operation bootstrap the other component of it was trying to kind of encourage or push out puerto ricans to go to um the mainland most notably new york where they worked in factories Mm -hmm. there
3: Yeah, you see the great uh, wave of migration from Puerto Rico to the mainland, uh, most especially New York with the uh, New Yorkans, is in the 40s and 50s. And these are obviously boom times in the United States. And this is the same time that you saw black folks coming down from the south who had been in a similar position, essentially, you know, peasant sharecroppers coming up to the north to get these good jobs. You know, by the time the 50s, 60s, and 70s come, the... uh, mainland United States starts to go into crisis too. So a lot of the poverty that you see you know, in the Puerto Rican community now in New York is because similar you know, to other parts of the country, the good jobs that they came for started to go away. One of the benefits I think that, uh, and maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, one of the reasons why the drive for Puerto Rican independent, independence has not gone away is because they have the unique ability to be able to do this circular migration where they can come to the U.S. and they can work a bit, send remittance back, save some money, and then they go back, you know, to their homeland, back to Puerto Rico, you know, with a little bit of change in their pocket.
2: Well, I mean, that was always, like, kind of a dream. Like, my, I mean, my, my grandfather, he was one of those guys that was a cane cutter and then he was a factory worker in new york and the idea was always that you would like go back and you'd get like a parcela of land and you you know would go back home i mean puerto rico it's in a really conflicted situation on one hand having a u.s passport is one of the most powerful things that you could have in the world um for nothing else than the fact that if you don't like the U.S., you can actually leave it, which is people something that people with less powerful passports can't do with their countries. But on the other hand, I mean, Puerto Rico has just been systematically kind of stripped bare and um, made unlivable by a series of policies. Uh, the latest thing that's happening is, and there's massive, massive protests against, is they're systematically uh, dismantling the University of Puerto Rico, which is this amazing kind of intellectual center they're just like defunding it and just kind of stripping it bare. They're also closing tons and tons of schools, especially rural schools. Teachers are and parents are doing school occupations now over this and thus making it so that if you live in a rural area, like you just can't get your kids somewhere. And they're closing perfectly good schools that are totally fine and even having kids be educated in trailers instead, while also... Um, there's this amazing woman. She's friends with DeVos. Her name is Julia Kelleher. She's a blonde lady from uh, Delaware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's I read about her. Paid twice as much as DeVos, twice as much. Yeah. And all she does is try to bring in charter schools to Puerto Ugh. Rico with like mainland teachers, not Puerto Rican teachers, and give money to politically correct- connected companies so that they can distribute cartoons about how you should be law-abiding that use friendly giraffes. That's it's it. almost
0: well, like when a landlord wants to get tenants out of their building, right? And they just, like, destroy it as much as they possibly can to try to get the tenants to leave. I feel like that's what's happening in Puerto Rico right now. Yeah, I mean,
2: I, or even, like, they just... So, I think that's what they're trying to do with, like, communities like La Perla, which is the community that, if you ever saw, like, the Despacito video, it was shot there. You know, it's a gorgeous, you know, waterfront thing in San Juan. They definitely want people out of that. But with the mountains, I just don't think they care. I think that literally the mainland policy is you people are brown and probably Mexican and poor. So <laughs> you should die or don't. It doesn't really matter. We can't gentrify that area.
0: Do whatever. But get maybe your, die. Get your racism right, people.
3: Which actually, I think it, it ties into another aspect of uh, global capitalism at this time is that, you know, as capital in its manufacturing or in its real estate or in its finance guys. Um, just kind of flits uh, across the world, uh, you know, bringing jobs, bringing capital and then leaving and uh, leaving destruction in its wake. You have larger and larger portions of the global population who become surplus populations.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Who
3: become populations that the state has no interest in taking care of that capital has no interest in exploiting. And essentially, whether it's in Mike Davis's term, the uh, planet of slums, uh, or if it's in the case of, say, Appalachia in the United States, or in the United States in uh, Puerto Rico, these people don't have anything to offer. So all we can do is manage them, right? What, leave them in the mountains or give them the bare subsistence after this horrific hurricane. And uh, just, you know, the, the system has forgot about them because they're not needed, essentially.
2: That's exactly, exactly it. I think that that what not just Washington, but also I I have to keep emphasizing the complete comprador corruption of uh, the Rosario administration as well. What they would like is they would like if basically a bunch of millionaires came to Puerto Rico, didn't pay any taxes, lived in gated communities, invited them to their parties. And then there were like just enough Puerto Ricans to serve them drinks. And the rest of the island, go fuck itself.
1: This has been sort of their policy over the last few years, right? Is like letting temporary residents live tax-free. So you get Bitcoin millionaires living mm-hmm. there for uh, five, uh, one day short of six months. Is that- Exactly,
2: exactly. Porto- At
3: least- I think there's a term, uh, portopia?
4: portopia? Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh,
2: God. I, met, I met by random on the street. I met the brother of that... Horrible Bitcoin dude with the horrible fedora. <laughs> that and his... could be
3: any Bitcoin dude, but yeah,
2: <laughs> he's the worst Bitcoin dude. This is like this is the thing that like hurts my 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 pride. I guess it's other places you'd get like a real you know like bastard robber baron like an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos. You know, they get this guy in Puerto Rico, Brock.
0: They don't even know if he's actually a billionaire. His name is Brock. His name is Brock. Jesus Christ. Brock
3: Landers, crypto That guy got
0: swirlies from Elon Musk in high school.
2: (laughs) He did. He did. No one knows if he actually has any of the money that he says he does. He's like a motivational speaker. He says he wants to turn it into Burning Man. It's so embarrassing. Like, why can't we have a real, like, bastard robber
0: baron?
3: (laughs) Wow. Oh, man.
0: Adding insult to injury.
3: Our Silicon Valley overlords are at it again.
0: I, I don't know if it was in your article or a different article that I read, maybe both of them where like for for all their predations the capitalists of old who brought manufacturing there they gave people jobs which you need if you're living under capitalism um and then and and that was always the justification right they're job creators they're job creators and then they relaxed the laws to the point where they only had to create four jobs (laughs) each person who like brought their capital there and then they even did away with that they're like oh that's too much you don't have
3: to do any jobs no jobs
0: nothing nothing and they live in these
2: impossibly bland entirely english-speaking gated communities that have their own services and that are completely cut off from the rest of the island
0: i really want to put a button on what we were talking about earlier about how the Spanish colonized Puerto Rico and the process by which they made people adhere to their system of production, right? Because a lot of what we talk about on this show is historical materialism. We're showing that capitalism is not natural. There's nothing natural about it. There's nothing efficient about it. And the idea that it's more efficient to import 85% of your food on an island that's perfectly capable of producing a lot of food itself is like insane to me. Or the fact that they I forget who
2: said it, but it was some someone of the influence to do this, he wants to like re- keep the energy based on coal. It's Puerto Rico. Everything could be everything could be done in solar. It, sure. Yeah. It's, it's always sunny.
3: Right. Or Gosh. wind even up in the mountains, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. And it's a deliberate strategy not to do things right. I and mean, one thing that I, I, I always think about is um, if you know that there's not going to be running water, right, for a long time, but there's lots of mountain springs and you're in disaster management, the first thing that you would do is give people filters. You wouldn't, mm-hmm. you wouldn't just expect people to line up every day for a small amount of bottled water that they have to drive there and waste their gasoline, except that's exactly what FEMA did everything was done in this like sort of short-term pawn shop as immiserating and humiliating as possible like disaster way disaster capitalist way
3: well you you mentioned disaster capitalists i think naomi klein her book the shock doctrine i think was um instrumental in helping us to understand how capital and its states uh is able to use a crisis to its advantage so you mentioned these uh, charter schools in puerto rico if people don't remember, during Hurricane Katrina, they did many things, but one of the things they did was completely privatize the school system down there. Uh, they also uh, basically took prevailing wage laws, uh, which exist in order to have you know a living wage in construction, which people like me care a lot about. They got rid of those, uh, at least temporarily. Um, and what they also did, too, was they didn't make a great effort for the primarily black uh, New Orleans people who had to flee uh, to be able to come back they were happy to have them go to Houston, which I think is similar to Puerto Rico, right? They're happy to have the problem be moved, you know, back to the mainland, right? Because that's just, you know, we can just fully... Uh, subsume them into the you know capitalist process over here in the United States in the in the mainland, and let Puerto Rico you know like you said have the people in the mountains take care of themselves. but this disaster capitalism you saw it in Russia right with that shock that we talked about within the David Cleon uh, episode you saw it in katrina i 'm sure it 's happening in some Cases in Houston right now as well, although Houston's already a neoliberal hellhole. But Puerto Rico, again, we have to look at this in terms of this, you know, structural ability for capital to use a what could be seen as a natural crisis, a natural disaster uh, that is in fact man-made, but use that in order to push through policies it would have wanted to push through anyways, because there is this crisis, right?
2: It's absolutely true, and also. There's a, a specific context right now with uh, Puerto Ricans being displaced onto the mainland, which is that Trump is engaging in hardcore fascist persecution of Latino immigrants, of all immigrants, but um, you know specifically he speaks about Latino immigrants. And so there are actually labor shortages for a lot of shitty jobs. And one of the things that I see happening is Puerto Ricans being well they're latino people but who have citizenship right and who are um much you know puerto ricans on the island are much poorer than the poorest state in america basically being used to fill these like super exploitive jobs now that um immigrants who you know, people who aren't american citizens are being terrorized and not able to yeah. you know even leave the house sometimes it's a
3: good point yeah Get rid of all of the you know, Mexicans or Ecuadorians, right? But, oh, look, we found a new labor supply to do the jobs yeah. that people, quote-unquote, don't want to do. Exactly, exactly.
0: It's also really important that you guys are talking about this history, right? Because when you see disaster capitalists come in and use a crisis to impose their vision on a people, on a place, you, you hear a lot of victim blaming about the debt, right? And that's their excuse for enforcing austerity. And they have this sort of ahistorical character to these arguments because if you went back further, you would see they were only in debt in the first place because of completely predatory policies that the U.S. and before that, other countries have imposed upon them, right? I, I, I've
2: never had like this super good financial um, explanation of things, but Lehman Brothers was deeply involved in, Greeks, in Greece's debt too. And Lehman Brothers was deeply involved in Puerto Rico's debt just mm. as it was with Greece's
3: I read a statistic that uh because uh Puerto Rican debt was uh, in in the form of bonds was such an attractive investment that something on the order of 80% of the mutual funds uh in the United States which are many people's 401k's or their pensions or various other investment devices 80% are tied into Puerto Rican debt. My god. So similar to Greece because what you saw in Greece was a similar sort of uh situation where you know the government had taken out way too many um you know issued way too many bonds and uh they were using it to fund daily services instead of capital expenditures or whatever and the debt kept rising and rising and rising um who will be made whole at the end of this is always the question there is a there's two sides to any credit transaction right a creditor will give you the money with the expectation they'll get a return on it, whether it's municipal bonds, whether it's you know Puerto Rican bonds or whatever the case may be, um, and they take the risk, and that risk is supposed to justify the interest that they get off of that. Now... What we've done over since the crisis, really, of ten years ago, uh, what we've done is we've socialized that risk. Because who is to say that the bankers that hold all this Puerto Rican debt need to be made whole? Why is it that the people of Puerto Rico have to suffer austerity, brutal austerity that's literally killing people, so that you know these mutual funds, these hedge funds, these uh, this global financial elite can get paid back fully? on this risky investment they made in the Puerto Rican economy. It's a choice, honestly. It's a complete and utter choice of this political system. And for all of us who don't pay enough attention to it, it's our choice, too, when we don't stand up and say, why the fuck are regular-ass Puerto Rican people? Why are abuelitas fucking suffering from essentially what is a crisis of these bankers, right? Make them take a fucking haircut. Wipe the fucking debt out. It's not that much money. It's, what, $80 billion dollars? Fucking, you know, Elon Musk and Bezos can, like, piss that off in a fucking week. It's and ridiculous. they were virtual...
4: They
2: were vulture capitalists. The yes. reason that they invested was because... They, they knew exactly how risky it was. These were vultures. But the prevailing opinion that we have in this world is literally that old people should die because the power grid is not good enough to support their ventilators so that someone... Not even the, the, so that they have less yachts, so that they have less money passively sitting in the bank, accumulating more yes. money, so that their useless cocaine-adled great-grandchildren <laughs> never have to work, even if they blow everything on cocaine for all of their fake friends. Well, That's let, where well we listen, Wyatt
3: Coke, Wyatt Coke does do work, okay? He makes wonderful shirts, and <laughs> you may be forced <laughs> to put one on later on. Just saying, throwing it out there.
0: So we've talked about... All of the debt and the austerity and the disaster capitalism, um, but I want to move on to something a little more i don 't want to say positive yeah i don't know it's it's inspiring. What have people been doing to resist austerity since the hurricane because there's a movement, and i I, I want to just give a
2: shout out to its roots, which is in the student movement of in the University of Puerto Rico, which um, you know is an old student movement, and that in sort of recent years had been doing a lot of uh, resistance to the budget cuts you at mentioned, the university. Anyway. Uh,
3: the university earlier, I, I recall they had a seventy-two day strike, yes. right, against the cuts.
2: Exactly, and so a lot of these student organizers, who are, you know, like working class young people, like deeply, deeply rooted in their communities. A- after the hurricane, uh, they came together and they started using, um, you know, some of the lessons that they had learned and. In uh, Caguas, uh, which is a city about an hour from San Juan, these these former student organizers took a model, which they had developed uh, around the time of the strike, which was doing uh, community kitchens as not just a method of feeding people, but for solidarity. And they made a community kitchen in Caguas that they called the Centro de Apoyo Mutuo. And I have been to uh, my share of refugee camps and my share of places where people stand up and get in line for food. I have never seen a place that was this joyful or this concerned with uh, the people that they were serving. I mean, this was a place where you had, like, musicians playing for everyone while they waited in line, and they were under tarps, and they were coloring books for kids, and it was, like, the best arroz con gondules in the world. <laughs> and it was everyone from the community making something that... Um, wasn't just desperately needed because all of the supermarkets are closed, right? And also people are poor, but it was also something that was beautiful. It was something that was that was joyful. It was something that you just wanted to be there. You wanted to hang out there forever. And the Centro de Pollo Mutuo model that they started in Caguas ended up spreading all over the island. Um, one of my good friends, uh, Christine Nieves and her partner, uh, Luis Rodriguez Sanchez, They work with an old school, socialist founded, like 30 years old organization in Barrio Mariana, which is in the east. It's like a small mountain neighborhood. And they started a mutual aid center that at first was uh, just food. But then it very, very quickly expanded to, um, you know, fixing people's roofs. Right. Like this is an elderly community, you know. Uh, need people who are strong who can like go on fix people's roofs so like you know grandma isn't like surrounded by black mold it expanded to clearing the roads to uh, doing legal help to doing um, medical stuff and people came from all over the world to help them Uh, one of the best humans i know which is this like appalachian anarchist uh, named jerry he came there with his tattooed crust punk friends. They bicycled up into the mountains. They set up like a hammock and some tents and they know how to do everything. And they made themselves incredibly beloved members of the community by going in with like chainsaws and fixing people's windows and clearing all those dangerous branches. And now he lives there and they've taken over a school that was abandoned. They turned it into a community mutual aid center. They work with, um, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, which I believe started in New Orleans, right?
3: Yes, yeah.
2: Mutual Aid Disaster Relief actually hooked them up with massive uh, solar that uh, powers laundry uh, laundromat that they have there because the thing that I heard from people was that seven months washing your clothes by hand, it's especially you know, when you're older, is, is brutal. It's a brutal, brutal thing. So just stuff like that that give people some time so that they're not just eking out like bare survival. I don't know. I have such admiration for it. And these centers, while they initially were about, you, you might say, oh, it's, you know, charity, which they weren't, they were mutual aid. But Yeah,
0: I, I wanted to get you to define that a little bit for our listeners who might not know um, the concept of mutual aid and how it would differ from, say, charity. Well, charity is going
2: somewhere and being like, you're poor, I'm not, I'm going to help you. Mutual aid is you being in that place and you being like, oh my God, we're fucked. The government abandoned us. We don't have any water. Why don't we pool our resources and our energy and we help, it, we help ourselves? So mutual aid is built on solidarity and equality. It's not uh, built on someone coming in from outside and saying, oh, you poor stupid peasants and you're pitiful but photogenic children. Here's oh. what you do. Mm-hmm. And in Puerto Rico... Mutual aid is an act of resistance because there is an effort, right, especially in desirable areas, to make people leave by denying them services. And so just by allowing people to stay in their homes, allowing them to live the lives that they want in their homes, in their communities, as opposed to being uprooted and having to go to the mainland and provide cheap labor, just that is resistance.
0: Hell yeah. I think sometimes people get a little confused on what the connection might be between say i don't know helping people get water fixing people's brake lights et cetera, et cetera, and anti-capitalism in general right because you see a lot of anarchists doing stuff like that you see food not bombs still going on shout out to food not bombs um but it is a kind of prefigurative politics right because it shows that we have everything we need to survive and we don't need someone to come in and tell us what to do and like the the responses to this disaster and and to many disasters that have happened in the recent past um it it really contradicts the conservative view of human nature right because in their view you know we need a leviathan or we need capitalism to keep us in line otherwise it would just be this like hobbesian war of all against all right but like that's not what we see in reality
3: yeah if i can jump in real quick um rebecca solnitz her name she wrote a book uh, i think in 2009 called a paradise built in hell and the thesis of it is exactly what you said babe it's that um There's this sense that when a natural disaster or a war or a famine or whatever happens, that all of a sudden, you know, people are unleashed to uh, release their darkest tendencies. They'll be looting. They'll be robbing. They'll be sexual assaults. They'll be killings and things of this sort. But she goes, you know, crisis by crisis and she looks and it is actually the I don't know the instinct or the drive of people in these situations to perform solidaristic mutual aid for one another and cooperate their ways, themselves out of these disasters. You saw this, uh, as you said, in in New Orleans when it happened. uh, And we saw this in New York during uh, Hurricane Sandy. Jamie and I were both involved in uh, Occupy Sandy, which uh, basically took the networks that had been created out of Occupy Wall Street and very quickly, within hours, utilize those in order to create a massive, well-run, and I'd say effective um, mutual aid network that was able to provide the services and the goods that people needed to survive the aftermath of that horrific disaster here in New York City almost immediately, well before the state, way before the feds had come in with anything. You know, Occupy Sandy was on the ground providing relief to people based on what they needed, right? We would get information on what they needed in this particular housing project or old folks home. We would send that information up to Sunset Park, where the distribution center was. We'd drive up there, grab all the things we need, and came back, and that's far different from some outside entity coming and saying like, well, what do you mean you have fresh springs and could use filters? Why don't we just give you you uh, what's a Dasani bottled water from Coca-Cola, you know? It's a very, very different way of operating. And I think that what Solnit's book points to, and I think what the reality is, is that there isn't this Hobbesian war against all, uh, war of one against all in, in these situations. In fact, there is the desire uh, for communities to come together and uh, help one another and create solidarity.
2: And one thing that I think is really important in the case of Puerto Rico, that's an additional layer, is because it's a colony. Puerto Ricans have been told and educated, right, for you know 120 years, like you're stupid, you're lazy, you can't do anything for yourself, and you need Daddy America to take care of you. And the Centro de Puyo Mutuo movement, many of the people involved in it are independence people, um, not necessarily members of the um, independence party, but people who uh, believe in independence from the U.S. And something that I heard over and over again, uh, and I remember it specifically, there's the, an amazing young labor organizer uh, named uh, Scott Barbas, who he told me he was like this shows that we can take care of ourselves this shows that we're not what america brainwashed us to
0: think that we are wow that's so powerful i just want to read a quote from one of your articles because i think it really highlights what we're talking about um and it is your friend jerry the anarchist bicycle punk from appalachia who went to help out in puerto rico and did you say he's staying there now he's 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 still there? there yeah that's awesome So he says, La Loma is the revolution because it's not going to be a Marxist worker uprising smashing the state because the state is going to collapse under its own weight. It's up to us as radicals to build the alternatives in the ashes because ashes make the best fertilizer. And I think that quote is it it just really describes so much of what I believe as a leftist. Like I, I don't have this like Posadist few of things where i'm like welcoming a crisis right i'm not trying to make a nuclear war happen although i'm sure if comrade communicator were here he would get very <laughs> mad that i've uh, painted posadas with such a broad brush mm-hmm. but the fact is crises are happening they will happen they're already happening and it's up to us to get ready as best we can for them because as we all know The capitalists are not afraid to use a crisis to create change in the direction they want it to go. Exactly. So it's not a matter of saying like, oh, why do you want to upend the social order of things? That's so scary. That's so dangerous. People are going to die. Like, why not? The status quo is safer. The center cannot hold, right? Like that will not be an option at some point in time. And it scares me to think that we might not be ready but it also inspires me to see how people are doing it in Puerto Rico right now. And,
2: I mean, yes, that's that's it. It's like it's not an option. Mutual aid is not an option. It's not is this better or is that worse. It's literally we're going to die or be displaced if uh, we don't engage in this. And the thing is, mutual aid, it has limits, right? You can DIY solar-powered laundromats and water filters and build like awesome agriculture you cannot diy and mutual aid chemotherapy right realizing like what you can do by yourself in small groups versus what you actually do need the state to do is something really crucial and one of the things that like always bothers me is i see so much war between people who are like kind of my beloved uh by punk anarchists uh, uh, who are doing amazing mutual aid and people who are more structural and who are like, Oh, you're just giving the state an excuse not to do its responsibilities. When in actuality, you need both. You need right. both so yeah. much.
0: Absolutely. I was really- and that's why I'm not a full on anarchist. And that's why I'm not a full on Marxist Leninist. Right? Cause there are, like you just said, we live in a complicated world. Things like chemotherapy can't really be organized by people living in this small closed system, like we need to coordinate from place to place. We need some kind of representative democracy that's accountable to people. On the other hand, like there is a lot that we can do on our own locally. So
1: so it's it's really interesting, this idea that uh, Puerto Rico might have enough resources to grow its own food, Uh, going back to the colonial times and this vision of um, a very DIY uh, mutual aid network and also of occupying schools. And uh, I think in some of those situations, attempting to continue to run the school outside of government control, which is something that might remind a lot of us about these ideas of communization. But at the same building
0: a new society in the shell of the old, might you say?
1: Sure. But at the same time, this is all forced by this negligent, borderline genocidal disinterest in giving any aid to the country. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested in hearing about how this movement has progressed and how viable the apoyo Mutuo model would be, not just for restarting a power grid and feeding people, but for running an entire country.
2: How viable would it be? It's a, it's a complicated question. Part of the reason that um, the movement works is because it hasn't, in large part, uh, directly confronted capital mm. yet. And in areas where it has confronted capital, there's been real repression, like Occupy, uh, it, it, or <laughs> or, or, in, or in Puerto Rico, uh, there was uh, a, a general strike uh, on May Day, uh, like there often is, and it was, you know, against austerity and against against everything we've been talking about, all of the sort of collective horrors and. This general strike was suppressed violently. It was not just you know tear gassed, not just shot up with rubber bullets, but uh, cops went through the student neighborhood and broke into people's houses and dragged out activists uh, where and beat the living crap out of them. I saw one of my friends uh, arrested um, extremely brutally uh, because he had tried to use his car to stop these rampaging mobs of cops that were going and beating up people in this neighborhood i mean he he tried to, he parked he basically wouldn't move his car out of the way and um he was on the floor with a bunch of people with their knees in his back um the labor organizer i spoke about uh scott he was interrogated by the fbi uh, after that and had his phone stolen even um there's an amazing uh art space uh, called casa taller uh that Agitarte, which is a radical arts collective works out of they had like police cars in front of them afterwards constantly. Uh, so I, I think that it's important to note that um, this hasn't faced the full force of state repression yet. And that in Puerto Rico, especially when um, movements, uh, whether it's the independence movement or uh, the socialist party, Uh, which was, uh, you know, run by Juan Mary Bra. when they have confronted the state uh, directly, the state has reacted with astounding violence, uh, with assassinations, uh, with COINTELPRO tactics. Um, The um, sort of legendary uh, head of the Independence Party, Pedro Bisucampos, had uh, radiation experiments done on him in prison for years that, um, you know, gave him cancer that he died of. Um, there are photos of his like just legs, which are these burnt, swollen, you know, horrors. So I don't know what will happen if the state does decide to repress this movement, because the state um, and by the state, I mean, both the the federal and the local governments um, have a real history of extremely violent entrapment and uh, extremely dirty tactics
0: but that is the main obstacle though right because there are people saying oh communism's a good idea in theory but it would never work to organize society because of human nature but like it seems to me that the primary obstacle to communism is not human nature but the violent repression of the status quo state
2: yeah that's one that's one pretty
0: damn big obstacle you know they say uh communism is a good idea in theory but it always ends in a cia-backed coup (laughs) right
3: i I wanted to actually make an analogy here because um we're gonna end up in mexico at some point soon and uh we are probably gonna go to chiapas and so we've been reading a lot about the zapatistas so shout
0: out to the zapatistas if any of you are listening we're very excited to come visit you
3: I think what's maybe similar between what the uh, Zapatista movement was able to do in Chiapas and uh, Oaxaca and that area, and perhaps what's happening in Puerto Rico right now is that they were able to create these autonomous communities uh, out of these indigenous communities that existed. They were able to create them in resistance to NAFTA and to the Mexican state. And I think the reason why they still exist till today is because similar to the mountain area of Puerto Rico, Uh, the Zapatistas are in the mountains of Chiapas. And as long as they can have their cooperatives and their autonomous zones and not bother, you know, capital or the majority of the Mexican state, right? The Mexican state is very happy to leave this kind of marginal, liminal area alone and let the people do their thing, the Zapatistas or whoever. Uh, It was when they went to San Cristobal, the main city down there, and occupied it that you saw massive state uh, force and repression. So... Maybe, you know, the people in the mountains of Puerto Rico could carve out a small niche for themselves with autonomous zones and whatnot. I think the real struggle, and you were both kind of pointing to it, right, is how does that generalize itself? How do we get out of the margins? How does mutual aid and organized self-activity go from something that happens in a crisis in a, you know, Mountainous zone somewhere in in uh, some southern uh, part of the world. Uh, how does it become generalized, right? And I think that that's I don't I don't have any easy answers for that, but I, I think that uh, it's an interesting thing to think about.
2: I that that's exactly spot on. Like how do how does it go from being an amazing life saving thing that's happening in you know, say like a squatted community like La Perla or else in a mountain community um, like Mariana, how does it go from that to keeping the University of Puerto Rico alive and um, providing hospitals that uh, can support this elderly population and keeping um, not just the schools open temporarily as occupations, but keeping the schools open as actual like schools that last year round and provide accredited
0: degrees for people? To me, this speaks, well, I guess two things. So the idea that no matter how hard people struggle in places like Puerto Rico and Chiapas and other parts of the world, no matter how hard they try to build a communal society around human needs, um, the U.S., imperial powers of the world are going to come in and crush them with horrible violence. And that just, I mean, we've talked about it before on this show. That just speaks to me of the need to take the struggle to the heart of empire right here, because you know, it's, it's, it's harder in some ways, but it's totally necessary because otherwise no matter where else it happens, it's just going to be crushed immediately. Um, I also want to know, I mean, we've been talking about it, but like what lessons can mainland leftists take from the struggles going on in Puerto Rico right now? Like you were talking about, Teachers occupying schools, really, um, really inspiring stories about like parents just taking over school cafeterias and using them to feed people in defiance of um, local authorities. And I just want to read a quote from Naomi Klein about taking back power because I really think it speaks to like what a lot of people, a lot of say, I don't know, even well-intentioned liberals in America might say about how like struggling is somehow privileged, right? You, you can't go on strike. You can't tell people to go on strike because they could lose their jobs. And we're seeing people with much less than we have in America struggling at least as hard as anyone has here. And I find that so, so inspiring. So I'm gonna read this quote from Naomi Klein and then throw it to you. Um, she says... I don't think anything has inspired me more than seeing what Puerto Ricans are capable of organizing in the most trying of circumstances. Not just resisting, not just saying no to these horrific predatory practices, but with the lights still off and without water and with families being split apart, coming together to say, what do we want instead? And creating space to dream, which was pointed out to me when I was in Puerto Rico is exactly what colonization was designed to extinguish. The right of people to dream their own future and design their own destiny. The fact that the Puerto Ricans are doing this under such extraordinary circumstances, I think, is something we all have to learn from. That's beautifully said. I think the biggest
2: lesson that and I I hesitate to say like a lesson for the entire left because the left is a huge and varied group that, that I don't know that there's one particular lesson that applies to everyone. But let's say I wanted to say the lesson for young leftist DSA members in Brooklyn, shall I say? Be part of your community. That that's the biggest thing. Like the reason that things didn't completely fall apart in Puerto Rico, despite this, uh, the reason that I felt totally safe walking around alone in cities um, with no lights and you know no 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 power uh, in a country in a country that's a colony that's extremely poor. The reason that things were, despite the most horrifying circumstances, that they functioned at all was because people lived in communities where they knew each other um, because they had strong family ties because they had strong ties with their friends because they had strong ties with their barrios. And I think that that's something that a lot of, I don't want to generalize, but like young white leftists living in gentrifying neighborhoods don't have. They don't actually have those ties with their neighbors for a whole huge variety of reasons. And if shit really went down, those ties with your neighbors are everything. Mm. So Mm -hmm. I, I would say like, that what you actually need to prepare for something like this is to live in areas where you know the people around you, you know what they need, you know who's sick, you know who's old, you know what resources they have and where you have each other's backs instead of just like retreating into yeah. you know a little bubble.
0: It's so hard cuz like I feel like that's a very New York thing to live next to somebody. I mean, Sean and I have been living next to this weird guy for years and I don't even know his name. We've maybe seen him all of like five times. I don't know. Yeah. Sean did try to make friends with him one time, and it just like did not work.
3: I think he's done smoke. Smoked himself retarded. I think he <laughs> just smoked way too much weed. Jordan, our neighbor, uh, we're sorry, oh, that's dude. that's his name. Yeah, that's his name. Uh, I, I, try, I brought some beers over to tried to hang with him, but uh, he's just, uh, I don't know just all smoked out man he's like joe rogan just can't just can't hang
0: maybe we should try with some other people on the block because that guy seems like a gentrifier anyway right let's try let's try with like i don't know that guy in the leather jacket who's always hanging out on the stoop on uh i won't say the name of the street because i'm gonna dox us but you know what avenue and like Sometimes he says nice things to me when I'm walking by about my leather jacket. Maybe I'll like have more of a conversation Does with him say, next
1: time. he ever say, It's also <laughs>
0: hard in New York
2: because of like the way the rental stuff is. It forces you to move every few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it, it's a very like atomizing city. But yeah, communities. Communities are the basis of surviving. Hell
0: yeah. And that's why I think stuff like tenant organizing is so important right? Because we can wring our hands about how we're white gentrifiers. We can sit around and do self crit all day. And that doesn't accomplish shit. Like what we need to do is recognize that, yeah, we might be a narrow slice of the working class as like downwardly mobile millennials, but we are a part of the working class and our neighbors are also a part of the working class. And we have common interests, right? Like we all rent our houses, right? We're, we're, We rent from the landlords. We rent from the landlord class. So when it comes time to, I don't know, organize for better conditions in our building or even cheaper rent. Some people in East Bay have successfully organized for uh, cheaper rent through um, East Bay DSA and create these like councils and community councils from there. Like that's how we radicalize the general population. It's not by like giving them some political education from on high, right? It's through struggling together for shared interests.
2: And also a lot of times it's not that they need, um, it's not that they need like, you know, young white DSA members to radicalize them. A lot of times they'd be the ones doing the radicalizing. Absolutely. And I think with gentrification, I mean, this is, you know, something I've I've noticed as someone, you know, who's not, it's not just that I'm from New York, like my my grandparents, you know, are from New York. It's that many people, I would say most people in the city who um, have to be renters, are both gentrifiers and people who are victims of gentrification Mm -hmm. at the same time at various points in their life. Even working class people who are displaced from a community, like uh, when they move into another community, are the gentrifiers just because newcomers pay more rent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the truth is like whether you're, you know, a Puerto Rican family that's, you know, living in a rent controlled place that pays $900 a month in rent, or whether you are, um, Eight downwardly mobile millennials who are paying two thousand dollars a month in rent to share one room with no light in it. Like, neither of you are gonna live in a condo on the waterfront in Williamsburg. Right. Neither nope. of you are ever gonna own anything. And ultimately, oh, we know. yeah, yeah. I've, I mean, I, it's this is you know I'm, I'm old now. Like this is my life. Like thinking about this. And welcome. Yeah. Ex- so
0: welcome to oldness. So so because
2: of that, I mean, I think it's just not particularly constructive to like what this is what Martin Dillon was doing you know that that do that uh mm-hmm. that venal do nothing it's not particularly constructive to focus on like the lifestyle choices of different victims of our terrible real estate market
3: lifestyles of the white and downwardly mobile <laughs> <laughs> right. and their avocado toast yeah.
0: oh damn it I knew I shouldn't have eaten all that avocado toast. Now I'll never have a home. Never.
2: Exactly, exactly. You ate that avocado toast, and so landlords had to kick out rent-stabilized
3: tenants. That's how it was. It it, it
0: did have a lot of amino acids, though, (laughs) to be fair.
3: Landlords love this one bizarre trick to making sure you'll never own a home.
0: You you want to finish with a little shout-out to the sex workers, and then you got to go? I know we both care a lot about sex workers' rights and SESTA-FOSTA, and I figured this is a good chance to bring up something that I don't think, maybe maybe you're aware of this, but I don't think you are. And it's my theory about why Lena Dunham quit Twitter forever.
2: What's your theory about why Lena Dunham quit Twitter
0: forever?
3: <laughs> Inquiring it, minds want to know.
0: It was you, Molly.
2: <gasps> what did I do? I, I bah, bah, bah. Be, Because I, I asked her to rescind her signature from that terrible letter that all the Hollywood actresses signed where they said that Decriminalizing sex work was like gender apartheid? Was it because of that? Very
0: perceptive. <laughs> so for those who may not know, the last interaction Lena Dunham ever had with anyone on Twitter, as far as I could tell, was that that interaction she had with you, where she was part of a group of dumb dumb actresses who, you know, maybe played a sex worker in a movie once, maybe not who were trying to pressure, use their celebrity power to pressure Amnesty International to rescind its draft proposal on protecting the human rights of sex workers around the world via um, a policy of decriminalization, which they found via multiple independent studies. Every independent study. Uh, So... Lena Dunham, or as I like to call her, Lena Dum-Dum, was like, you know, shooting her mouth off on Twitter about things she doesn't understand. And there were tons and tons of sex workers telling her she was wrong. But the only person she would respond to was Molly, because she has a name that she recognized. (laughs) And in addition to that, she had actually asked Molly to uh, do something for her uh, Dum-Dum letter. Is that what it's called? Letty letter? <laughs> yeah.
2: And, um, Lame-o and, letter. I, and I wrote an open letter and, and I said that I couldn't do it until she rescinded her signature.
3: Fuck yeah.
0: Yeah. So they, they had this little exchange on Twitter. The only person she would respond to was Molly. And uh, Molly was like polite but firm. Like, no, this is wrong. This is literally going to kill people. And I care about people and I care about sex workers because I, in addition to caring about humans, some of my best friends are sex workers. Yada, yada. And... Lena Dunham quit Twitter after that, shortly after. And it, what, okay, here's what I think about it. It wasn't because guys constantly tweet at her, calling her fat, right? Because I'm a woman on Twitter, Twitter, I get that all the time. Yeah, I don't care about that. Doesn't bother me that that much. Yeah, that's nothing. It's because the, the things, and I'll speak from experience, the things that get to me on Twitter or wherever is when somebody has a good faith criticism and I think I might be wrong about something or I think I might have genuinely been the asshole or punched down or, or hurt people. And the thing that Lena Dunham does is the same thing Hillary Clinton does. Right. It's just like, well, it's not limited to bourgeois feminists, but like you want to paint all criticism as bad faith criticism. Right. You say, oh, that person's a sexist if they're a man or oh, that person's just jealous. And there was no way that she could do that with you. And she that's what she couldn't fucking handle. And then shortly after, she fucked off of Twitter forever. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, Molly, thank you for your service.
2: I legitimately (laughs) thought, I mean, I know this will sound naive, but I just thought that when you're famous, people just shove petitions in front of you. And I thought that it was something like someone said, is it wrong to rape children? And all these actresses were like, yeah, it's wrong to rape children. Add my name. Mm -hmm. And they just needed someone who, I guess, had enough um, pull in their orbit to to explain to them patiently, like, why they had signed something bad. And I actually thought because she had approached or through people, she had approached me to work for her thing that she might actually rescind her signature. You were thinking
3: the best of her. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. That's very kind always, of you. Very good hearted. Always seeing good in people, Molly. I, I, I was, the, I was, so that's why I, I wouldn't work for them because I thought that it actually had a chance of working. <laughs>
0: well, I think there is a happy ending to this story. And that is that Lena Dunham has finally, you know, maybe after talking to a few more famous people that she's friends with. Um, she's changed her mind about sex workers' rights and decriminalization. So that's that's very good. That's very good. I I'm that, glad. Day late and great a great dollar va- short. Great fine. <laughs> so maybe uh, maybe you can make some art for her after all. I don't know if it's exactly my style. I never
2: watched Girls. I don't get why everyone hates her so much, but um, I don't I, think we have the same aesthetic. <laughs> I,
0: I think we just discussed it. I think that that about covers the basis of why people hate. You know what? I will say, I don't even hate girls. I don't dislike girls. I watched the whole thing one night when I was really stoned on an edible that Some I should Some of your best had. friends are girls. Exactly. But, like, I just don't like it when she tries to run her mouth off about political things that she doesn't understand, which is most of them. So, yeah, I think for the final, like, ten minutes or so, this episode, I just want to give a shout out to all the good things that our friends in the sex workers rights community have been doing lately cuz it's a lot. My god, survivors against Testa, uh
2: which is a group that I have a lot of friends in including Lola Balcon who's one of the most impressive activists that I met. Shout out to
0: Lola Balcon.
2: Shout out to her, Rachel Rabbit White. And um this is the first time, and I'm sure it's been done before, but you know, I I don't know it, I'm not intimately familiar with it, that I've seen sex workers hardcore organized as a political constituency that politicians have to pay tribute to. And I saw them first do it with Suraj Patel, uh, who is a very flawed candidate, but to his credit, he really did listen to sex workers. But then I saw them do it with Julia Salazar. And they broke a taboo julia salazar won, and she supported sex workers and she didn't just support them a little bit she supported them a lot she Mm. did canvases with them she spoke about them just the fact that they got someone in right they got a politician in who is able to frame anti-sex work policies as what they actually are which in new york is a generally way of persecuting black and brown and trans and chinese immigrant women and arresting them for daring to exist in public
0: J- the yeah, fact- you want to talk about intersectionality. That's like all the oppressions at once, right?
2: Dude, I reported from a court in the Bronx. You would think that there wasn't a single white escort in all of New York City if mm. you went to that court. Or if you went to the one in Queens, you wouldn't think that there was a single sex worker in New York that wasn't a Chinese immigrant that didn't speak English.
3: Let me just assume for, the, for a second that I am a uh, cis male brocialist and that I have no idea what this Sesto-Fosta pasta, whatever the fuck it is. Can you uh, explain to me, the two of you, uh, what the stakes are in Sesto-Fosta and uh, this whole sex trafficking thing and uh, you know what leftists should feel or think about it or do about it?
0: Yeah. So this is a pair of bills um, in the House and the Senate that were sold as something that would go after sex traffickers, right? Which, like everyone hates sex traffickers like i don't support kidnapping children against their will and making them engaged in prostitution but in reality these bills are only going to make the lives of not just sex workers but trafficking victims themselves much much less safe and if anyone in power listened to sex workers they would know that um i think I was especially disappointed in Bernie Sanders for voting for it because I know that he heard from people about it because I know people who sent calls and letters to his office about it. And it was just like a political calculation. Like it's not worth it. Um, There's there's really not enough on the counterbalancing side that's going to get him out of whatever hot water he's in with liberal feminists for supporting this like can you even imagine like Bernie Sanders hates women Bernie like, Sanders loves child rape but like he's supposed to be better than that still so That's I think 2020 a lot of people... is
3: gonna be the headline oh my god Bernie Sanders likes child rape and the
2: thing is this the SESTA and FOSTA bill what they do is they shut down uh, websites that sex workers use both to advertise and find clients but also to share information for instance bad client lists right health information To keep each other safe, Yeah, yeah, to to keep each other safe, to protect each other. There's always been a joke that liberal, some sort of liberal sex work abolitionist feminists have claimed that um, sex workers and their allies are the quote-unquote pimp lobby, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in actuality, if I had to think of what the quote-unquote pimp lobby would be doing, it would be passing this goddamn bill. Because SESTA and FOSTA, what they do is they prevent women from being able to be independent sex workers. They force them to either work on the streets, Or work with pimps or madams or agencies they take away the entire ability to work for yourself so yeah this bill is actually the pro-pimp bill
0: not to mention it drives sex trafficking further underground and makes it harder to investigate when there are real instances of sex trafficking and we've seen news about this since the since these bills passed We have seen cops saying, oh, it's harder now. Like, no shit. Like, maybe you should have listened to us before, idiots. Uh, Can can I say one more thing? Yeah, yeah. So as a note on
2: trafficking, I just want to talk about the incredibly pathetic and poor response that New York courts actually have to women that they say are trafficking victims. I I did these investigations of um, the special prostitution courts. These courts are made under the assumption that Everyone who is arrested for uh, working as a sex worker is trafficked. And obviously, I don't believe that. But let's say I did. What does someone who is a trafficking victim need? What's the first thing they need? They need a safe place to stay. These Money, co-
0: maybe. Yeah, money, food, money, shelter.
2: food, shelter. These courts provide nothing of that. These courts, what they do is they have our rapey New York City cops arrest women who they claim are raped trafficking victims. Do all the terrible things that our lovely cops do to them, put them in jail. Then, after they, uh, you know, get out of processing, they haul them in front of the judge, and the judge sentences them to counseling. How in hell would counseling save you from a trafficker?
3: And I think Jamie's going to bring it, Jamie's going to bring us out in a second. But on that particular note, the news just broke last week that a uh, retired New York City detective, along with seven, eight, nine, ten other. New York uh, NYPD uh, officers were running brothels throughout uh, New York City for over a decade without being caught. So they were literally the pimps, the NYPD in this situation.
0: It's bad folks. And it's also like how fucked up is it that up until basically now the only politicians opposing these types of laws have been libertarians.
2: It's so fucked up. And that—that that is why the organizing of what uh, Survivors Against SESTA is doing is important, because the reason that yeah, Bernie Sanders endorsed this terrible pair of bills is because he's afraid of being accused of being pro-child sex slavery. Mm-hmm. And the more politicians you have that are out about supporting sex workers and that are winning elections, the more we move to a place where that isn't a fear people have anymore.
0: Hell Yeah. And, like, I I know that I've been an electoral skeptic on certain things in the past, but in terms of your ability to influence policy that's currently being debated, I mean, certainly it's worth a try. Like, I actually just did an announcement at the last uh, DSA, North Brooklyn branch meeting. Um, shout out to North Brooklyn DSA. Come to our meetings. Um, but, like... After Julia's campaign, right, where she talked about sex workers' rights, she did a canvassing with sex workers, she won. There's now a decriminalization bill coming up for a vote, we think, in the state Senate next year that she'll actually be able to vote on and talk about. So, like, I think that's a very clear example of the way you can change policy when you get enough people together and they speak as a constituency.
2: Exactly, because the only way that we're going to... Um break down stigma for sex work is by showing people in power that if they continue to stigmatize us it will hurt them and that's one of the things that electoral politics can actually do and can i just give a shout out to like two orgs that are more like working class sex worker orgs that yeah is, so um black sex workers collective is amazing my friend akinos runs it and uh lissa strata project which provides emergency funds for working class sex workers of color who are short on the rent or need some money for food. Those are both amazing uh, groups that you should support. They're sex worker run, led by sex workers for sex workers, and uh, yeah, like support, and have our backs. That's a, the
3: mindset, folks. And there's a link we can put those to in the yeah, show absolutely. notes. Yeah, absolutely, right. I'll give you those. We'll definitely do give that. Give
0: them money. In conclusion, uh, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez runs for president, we're gonna get all our sex worker friends together We're gonna canvass the fuck out of it. We're gonna win rights for sex workers and everyone. And step three, full communism.